so thank you both for inviting us. Um, Suzanne and I have known each other, I don't know, seven or eight years. I think we met over an Agnes Martin painting, I was which thinking was um, um, a good way to meet. And um, we both are coming at this from pretty different angles, so we thought we'd tell you a little bit about that. And then I'm going to give you just a kind of an overview of Frankenthaler, the person and the artist. Suzanne's going to give you a little art historical context. And then we thought we'd kind of open it up into a couple of topics that, that are of interest to us and hopefully to you as well. One, the idea of beauty and um, kind of the, the weight that that term carries and the different tones that it's taken on over time. Um, and then also to talk about what John just mentioned, which is that there is this really strong effort to kind of look back at this time period, but also women artists specifically from this time period, and to rethink the history um, in some really fascinating and rich ways that we're hoping to talk about. And then at the end, we'd love to hear from you. And at, you know, I, I would love to hear how people are responding to the paintings, but also we're happy to answer questions. So, um, so I'm Sarah, and I'm a curator across the street, and I work primarily on <coughs> painting. But um, you know, at, at SFMOMA, we kind of all do it all, but I mostly work on historical, um, uh, kind of mid 20th century. So I worked on the Rauschenberg show that we had not so long ago, and I'm currently working on a John Mitchell retrospective, which will be opening um, here uh, in a year from January. So I'm, I am up to here in Joan Mitchell, but I promise to be talking about Helen Frankenthaler. Um, I'm sure I'll slip into Mitchell land a few times, so I hope you'll bear with me with that. Um, and Suzanne, you want to say a little sure. bit? Sure, so and, um, is this an okay volume? Um, I, um, as you just heard, live in LA where we also have bad air quality currently, so I feel also a little bit hoarse. So forgive me if I'm, um, probably we're all in the same boat, so you'll, you'll forgive that. Um, but so I write a lot on um, kind of modernist mid-century painting as well. Um, I have books on Robert Ryman and Agnes Martin, and I've been interested in Frankenthaler and um, kind of her peers for a very long time. And I was thinking about it when we were kind of preparing for today because I feel like I've gone on many kind of dates um, with her as it were, but never written a kind of full text that looks at her work very directly. And part of that is because a lot of the other work that I do has to do with contemporary painting. And she is an artist who comes up so frequently in the work of other artists uh, who are working currently of different generations. And so she's someone who I kind of keep going back to also, um, taking the lead of artists who I'm writing about and thinking about their work and what they're making now. And her precedent seems so incredibly live to me in all kinds of ways. Um, so I've, I've really been thinking about her both in terms of the kind of historical milieu that she was working in and I'll kind of address some of that, um, but also thinking about the kind of resurgence of abstract painting in the last few years and how some of the procedural devices that she really um, kind of pioneered have found um, in some ways a kind of afterlife that's been very profound in the work of a lot of younger artists who are painting right now. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and we're going to keep this kind of loose. We've got yeah. an outline, but we also are going to um, poke each other a little bit. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, so a little um, sort of Frankenthaler overview. And forgive me if you're all Frankenthaler experts, but I thought it would be useful for a lot of people to just give you a basic kind of grounding in who she was um, and why, why we're interested in her work. Um, she was born in 1928, and as John mentioned, she was from a very... A prominent well-to-do family. Her father was um, Supreme Court Justice for the state of New York and she grew up on Park Avenue and she went to very excellent private schools in New York City. She went to Dalton and graduated from there very young at the age of 16. 
And one of the really extraordinary um, aspects of her, her education, I think she was really immersed in art and had an ex extremely sophisticated arts education, both formally and informally from a very young age. So she, she grew up going to MoMA and the Met and she studied while she was in high school with Rufino Tamayo. Um, Mexican modernist painting who was teaching um, <laughs> um, who was teaching at Dalton extraordinarily uh, and because she graduated so young she took a year off before she went to college and she studied privately with Tamayo in that time frame so a really advanced art education at a very young age um, and then she did go to Bennington which was um, the women's college at that time that was known for having put the study of fine arts kind of on an equal playing field with the humanities and um, and in fact was kind of known as being too arty for some people. Joan Mitchell's parents forbid her from going to Bennington because they thought it was too arty and she went to Smith instead so she could get a more rounded education. Um, so again, a very high level arts education at Bennington and she took several semesters where she lived in New York City and um, so she was going back, she was spending time in museums, she was going to galleries, so very in touch with what was going on there beginning in the late 1940s. Um, she uh, moved back to New York City permanently in 1950 and she very uh, quickly organized um, a Bennington alum exhibition, art exhibition in New York and she invited, reached out and invited critics and people that she you know, sort of heard of, including Clement Greenberg, who by that time was already a very established, eminent critic. And he um, walked through with her, and the one painting he pointed out that he didn't like evidently was hers. <laughs> uh, but they became um, friends and then had a romantic relationship that went on for several years after that. And he introduced her to the whole sort of downtown New York school circle. So de Kooning and Klein and Pollock, and she um, very quickly kind of uh, fell into the, the social circle, but also the art scene um, that was happening uh, in, in um, the early 1950s. She spent some time in Provincetown studying with Hans Hoffman, and Provincetown, um, uh, Provincetown would become a really important place for her. Later on, she would go back in the summers quite a bit and eventually own a home there. That landscape, that light, the water, the very particular color palette, really uh, deeply in, uh, ingrained in her um, color sensibility, I think, and in a lot of her work. And, um, and then she very quickly began showing. Um, very young, very great opportunities right off the bat. She was close to the circle of painters and poets around the Tibor Denage Gallery. Um, a very interesting group of people, Frank O'Hara and painters Al Leslie. Um, who am I forgetting? I don't know. Larry Rivers. Yes. Grace Hardigan. Grace Hardigan, yes. Um, a very lively and. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Larry Rivers and Grace Hardigan. We yes. kind of said under our breath. Um, a very lively social group. Um, a lot of gay men in the group. A lot of humor and a little more lightness, I think, than some of the more um, serious circles that were drinking together in Cedar Bar and places like that, perhaps. Um, in a really important kind of formative, um, creative uh, environment for her. She um, started showing there, and then she, uh, she had this kind of breakthrough moment in 1952. Um, it's, a, it's a, one of those great art historical stories. It was a breakthrough both for her, but then also has come to really be seen as a watershed, I think, um, in painting. She made a painting called Mountains and Sea, um, which she uh, was kind of loosely inspired by having done watercolors while she was traveling through Nova Scotia 
and um, Kate Breton, and she had be, been very impressed by Jackson Pollock and his idea of working on the floor, and had been kind of thinking about that and internalizing what it might mean for her own work. And she made this painting rather than with a brush by pouring paint on a canvas stretched on the floor. So it was the first of what we call her stain or soak works. And it really, um, she knew, I think, right away that it was a real breakthrough for her. And it very quickly um, became influential. There are a number of painting, painters who saw it, uh, particularly Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland, who then kind of took it as their own jumping off point and went on to create the body of work that we now call color field painting. So those critical years, very early 1950s, I don't want to just talk about the 50s, but they were critical years um, for her in that whole circle. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the process in a bit because I think that that's um, one of the really uh, important ways of thinking about her work. Um, but at that same time, she's kind of coming into the vocabulary, the allusion to landscape and to weather and ephemeral kind of experiences and phenomena, vocabulary of sort of loosely organic forms, um, living organisms and traces of things like that showing up in the work. She really quickly in the 1950s had started having significant success and by the late 1950s that expanded into international exhibitions. She was in Documenta in 1959 and she won the first prize in the Paris Biennale in 1959, which was um, quite prestigious um, and again, very young. And she had her first survey exhibition in 1960, which was organized by Frank O'Hara, the poet, and who was also a curator um, for the Jewish Museum. So getting into the 60s, she really kept her course. She uh, continued showing. I think painting became quite kind of contested at that moment, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So like a lot of the New York School painters, the exhibition activities sort of tailed off, but I think maybe a little bit less so for her than for some others. Um, and again, she started this, at this point in time, she really started going to Provincetown very regularly and established a studio there. A Whitney retrospective in 1969 was, a, again, another kind of big moment and a kind of a turning point in her reception. Um, in the 1970s, she began experimenting with sculpture and ceramics and printmaking. Printmaking became a very central um, part of her practice. And there's some really extraordinary works, um, woodcuts downstairs that if you haven't spent time, I encourage you, they are tremendous powerhouse works. Um, Te technically, but also extraordinarily beautiful. Um, she began spending a lot of time in Connecticut in the 1970s, ultimately buying a house there first in Stanford and then Darien, and that's where she would um, live and work the rest of her life. Another major retrospective in 1989, organized by Fort Worth that traveled to New York, um, and one devoted to her uh, works on paper and prints uh, in 1993. Recently, she's really been included in a lot of the um, major exhibitions of abstract expressionism that are kind of rethinking that category, the great Women of Abex show that Denver did, um, and a, a, a show that was done at the Rose Art Museum that has been kind of memorialized in this book called The Heroin Paint, which we both brought our copies of, just so you know. Um, uh, but really, um, has a very interesting uh, way of looking at her work and then looking at what's come after through her work, which I'm sure you'll talk more about. Um, so 
uh, a little bit about process because it's fascinating and I think more than um, almost any other artist I can think of, it is so central to the way we think and look and talk about her work. So the main innovation that she um, came up with in 1952 was to, to rather than use a brush or uh, and rather than using a primed canvas, which is a canvas that's been prepared with kind of a thick um, white gesso or another ground layer, she used raw canvas. So the, the paint gets poured on, manipulated sometimes with sponges or squeegees or um, with her fingers pushing it across. She had all kinds of tools. There are great videos if you're interested of her um, on YouTube pouring and pushing paint around. She would actually stand in the painting, which if you think about the perspective of an artist at work, there's something very different physically about standing in front of something on a wall or on an easel and the address of your body to that, the, the, your, your <coughs> eye height, the, your viewpoint, your whole physical engagement with the work is very different from if it is spread out on the floor and you don't actually even know where the edges of your finished painting are going to be. It's about the physical experience of pouring the paint, watching it roll, pushing it around and being in the painting. Um, and, and the paint would soak completely into the canvas. So rather than a brush mark on a surface, it is, it is a stain. It is soaked into the actual fabric of the canvas. And so the color and the texture, the weave of the canvas itself becomes a color and a texture and a, a part of the painting in a way that it doesn't if you're laying um, paint down with a brush. Um, uh, she sometimes poured paint from the back as well and let it soak through and I haven't been able to confirm, I don't know if either of you know, yes, I think that one, it looks like it was poured yes. from the back, yes. Yeah. And then she would turn it over and then um, uh, uh, continue working on the front of it. So again, a completely different way of thinking about a painting. Um, uh, it provides a very immediate surface and it's one element, and maybe this, I'll hand it off to you with this idea, which is rather than a record of her hand, which was something that was so central to the painters who came of age in the late 1940s, 1950s, that, that each painter has an individual brush mark that's almost like a signature or a fingerprint that's identifiably a de Kooning mark or a Joan Mitchell mark, um, that there's no evidence of a brush mark or a hand, but it's more what you're seeing is an evidence of her intention and her thinking about color and shape. Um, so it's a very different uh, uh, kind of a mark, but again, very unique and distinctive. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll um, kind of jump off there, actually, in thinking about this kind of question of the mark and process and um, putting this in a broader context of how, how, it, um, how it meant to her, how it came to make meaning at this juncture in the early 50s. So um, in the same kind of... Um, preamble or disclaimer of the fact that probably many of you do know something um, quite substantial about Frankenthaler. Forgive me if some of what I will go through is also um, material that you're familiar with, but it was just certain aspects of this history of this period that I was thinking about in relation to these issues that we wanted to kind of think through together tonight. Um, so one, um, and maybe I'll come back to the mark actually, maybe I will do this in a slightly different order. 
Um, but I was thinking a lot actually about her in New York in her childhood and the kind of moment of institution building that that represented. And so what I mean for that is that, you know, in some ways we take for granted now she was, she was at the Met or she was at MoMA. But in fact, MoMA was a new institution in 1929 and of course the Whitney as well within a year. And so you have at that moment um, a really interesting coincidence of an institution devoted to modern art, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment, but also an institution devoted to modern American art, which is also something that I think had an absolutely different valence at this moment. And she started working, she really came to age as an artist in a period in which American art became culturally central in a way that it had never been before. So to say, um, and maybe I'll talk about the Whitney first and then come back to MoMA in just a moment, but the story of the Whitney I think is very interesting and this gives us some insight into other things that I'll talk about in a couple minutes about the kind of centrality of New York in this period that she's working. Um, which is to say that the Whitney was founded, um, as probably a lot of you are aware, by a woman named Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney who was really an heiress and a sculptor in her own right. But she started something called the Whitney Studio Club in downtown New York in the teens. And this really became a kind of point of congregation for a lot of artists who were working downtown, the kind of bohemian circle before this bohemian circle. Um, and she was collecting a lot of the work um, that the artists were making. And the reason for that was that she really didn't feel as though she wanted to kind of hand out money. Um, for her, it was a way of sustaining patronage without it being seen as charity. So she would often exchange people, um, you know, like buy their work instead of paying for their rent or whatever it might be. Um, but where this becomes important for the story here is that by the late 1920s, she had amassed an incredibly significant collection of painting, um, paintings that no one else wanted. American artists during the teens and 20s were still studying in Paris. They were still going abroad for kind of latter-day versions of grand tours to be educated. There were not significant collections um, that they felt that they, um, I mean, they, they had to see things elsewhere as well as here. They had to be trained in academies that were not in the, uh, not in the United States. So even kind of quintessentially American artists who we think of from this period like Edward Hopper were being trained abroad. So all this to say she was buying work that artists didn't want. And in fact, so much so that when she ran out of storage space for all of these works that she had been um, accumulating through the teens and 20s through the mechanism of the studio club, she offered all these works to the Metropolitan Museum and they refused the gift. They said these are not worthy, this is like they didn't even want to pay to store it. So that was actually how she decided to found the Whitney Museum of American Art. Um, so this is a very important moment for the kind of rendering or making public of young American artists um, within their own community and also as a place of exhibition that would sustain itself primarily through um, exhibitions of recent work. So we still have, of course, the Whitney Biennial, but it was annuals that started almost immediately upon the opening of the museum, which had a lot to do with how the studio club had been having kind of open exhibitions of contemporary art for the many years um, leading to that. Um, but the other point about MoMA that I wanted to make is that they, on the other hand, did not actually have a permanent collection until the 1950s, actually until 1953. So they were a very limber and experimental museum in a totally different way. Um, if the Whitney was you know, experimental in its advocacy for the work of young American artists, 
MoMA was really doing incredibly interesting shows um, that were drawing from folk art, the art of children, um, in the context of World War II, exhibitions devoted to camouflage and military propaganda. They were convening art therapy sessions in galleries. Um, so it was a very different MoMA than the MoMA we've kind of inherited. Um, but they too were starting to collect, um, again, not for a permanent collection, which didn't get established for some time, but they were really very keen to bring in work of younger artists. But the primary point of collecting for them was European modernism. And so when she would have been seeing this work, it was a lot of cubism. Um, it became a lot of surrealism. And I wanted to bring that up because what she had been painting before she developed this, this process that you were describing was a lot of work that looked much more kind of representative of her generation, um, working through cubism, breaking down forms, um, rendering the human body, um, much more figurative work, I guess that goes without saying. But the work was really kind of commensurate with a lot of other work. And in fact, if you look at some of the really early work, it's really hard to imagine the leap to something like this. It's like a complete other universe that she somehow gets to. So the question is how, or what were some of the other kind of institutional and other factors? Um, so some of the things that I wanted to kind of think about as well as this kind of idea of institution building and the moment of her generation starting to see itself represented on the walls of institutions that were devoted to the art of their own time. Um, was the prevalence through the early 1940s of the WPA and government-sponsored projects? And this, I think, is a very important aspect of this, um, more so absolutely for people like Lee Krasner, who was still doing projects into the early 40s. But there was a different ratio of women, and I think you brought the, um, the Mary Gabriel book, but she talks about this at different points, the, um, the Ninth Street Women book. Um, I wouldn't say there was gender parity there, but this was a, a kind of way, a kind of um, mechanism by which many artists who happened to be women found employment through the 30s and 40s. And in fact, one kind of interesting thing, I know you're, um, it could potentially lapse into Mitchell. I've been working on Krasner more recently, so sorry about that. Um, but you know, she was much better known than Jackson Pollock when they first started dating. And she was in fact in charge of some very significant projects for the government as late as 1943, um, in charge of you know, whole kind of staffs working under her. Uh, which is something quite interesting. But in the absence of government support, they really um, had to develop a very different patronage system. And so during the 40s and 50s, there was a whole range of galleries that got established in New York as well. Um, and so this becomes incredibly important also to this idea of first or second generation abstract expressionism. Some of it had to do with, with actual age. Um, and kind of biographical factors that were um, kind of intractable. But a lot of it had to do with which gallery you were showing at, kind of which community within the kind of larger community you were a part of, how far downtown you were. Um, Frankenthaler um, grew up uptown, I think on the Upper East Side, right? But then later had a studio on the Upper West Side. Um, so geography as a kind of determining factor also with this idea of first or second generation. Um, but thinking about galleries as real hubs and kind of nexuses of conversation and practice and where a lot of the other artists were seeing each other's work. Um, and so within that, I think the idea of the New York School is something that I want to both throw out and kind of trouble. 
because it was just one way of thinking about this kind of affiliated group of practitioners. Um, it was also, of course, um, later, and it's how we've probably come to know it more um, definitively as abstract expressionism, but there were different labels that were kind of put on this shifting group of um, participants for much of the 1940s and 50s. Um, and so one of the things that I want us to think about also is the way that this movement was in some ways being retrospected as early as it was being developed because there were institutions to accommodate it. Um, and also I was thinking about the fact that, you know, we often talk about pop art and Andy Warhol in particular as being really important in the history of art as using um, celebrity almost as a kind of medium or also thinking about mass media. Um, the incursion of photography into studios or giving interviews or being really a kind of public persona and the kind of attitude of the artist being very important for the reception of the work. And in fact, I think, you know, we have to position this much earlier with somebody like Jackson Pollock who was in Life magazine in 1949. Um, the magazine asked a question that is assumedly rhetorical, saying, is Jackson Pollock the most important living painter or living American painter? And of course, they answer in the affirmative. But the idea that, you know, photographers were going into studios, that they were taking action shots of Jackson Pollock working, um, is something that I want to kind of put on the table here for us tonight too, because it's absolutely the process that I think Frankenthaler understood, seeing his paintings from 1950 and 1951, seeing the seepage into the weave, seeing the kind of understanding that they were made horizontally, but also having this kind of, um, the, how we can look at them now, I guess, on YouTube. It was like the earlier version of this, right? That we have Hans Namath and other photographers who start photographing artists at work. So you see Pollock in the kind of choreography moving around, kind of circumnavigating the edges of the, of the canvas in what people characterize as an almost like shamanistic dance. Um, but the performance of the work of art being important so that it's not just that the work of art kind of exists apart from its making, but somehow making becomes focal, making becomes part of the story that we tell about the ultimate artwork. Um, I think that was a very important and kind of proximate point of reference for her as well because that would have been a point of mediation for her before she got to know him and very quickly um, she did get to know him and I think it was as early right as like 1951 she was going to visit Pollock yes. on Long Island very so very early she was actually interacting with him kind of as a person as well but again this idea that, that work would be mediated photographically, that the process would be something that would be visualized in mass media um, is something incredibly important. Um, and then also, and maybe, maybe kind of finally, and then we can circle back to some of these other things, um, thinking about the, um, the kind of place of the American again, which I've already kind of alluded to, and this being the moment where American art, um, one historian named Serge Gabot talks about this as the kind of triumph of American painting or the moment that New York stole the idea of modern art, as though Paris has kind of passed the baton elsewhere across, across the water. Um, and in some ways this is true, and in some ways this is not true as any kind of stories that are wildly caricatural, but this kind of boosterism of American art during this period is something that I think is incredibly important to bear in mind. 
Um, so much so, in fact, that Pollock and the work of other abstract expressionists goes on a kind of victory tour in the context of the Cold War after World War II finishes, um, sponsored by the International Council um, of, of the Museum of Modern Art, where the idea becomes, maybe you don't like this painting, maybe you think his splatters you know, are um, ludicrous, frankly, or anti-aesthetic. But in America, this was the kind of line, and you can imagine how this worked in the context of this political moment. Um, in America, we have the liberty um, to paint as, as we wish. Um, and so it was a kind of pro-democratic position that was being articulated through this painting that bore no relation to narrative-based traditions, figurative art, and absolutely not kind of socialist realism or other forms of state-mandated practice that were being enacted in other parts of the world um, in these years. Um, but at the same time, why I think this is a little bit, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the full story, of course, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but with the war came a lot of immigrants from Europe to the United States. The influence of surrealism on Pollock and the abstract expressionist circle was profound. Freud by that point was living in London, but a lot more of his works were being translated into English as well. The idea of the unconscious and the idea of mark making becoming so important precisely because it was somehow a kind of guarantee of subjectivity, the kind of unconscious being unfurled um, or kind of performed through obdurate material as something that was so individual, um, something that only that one person could possibly achieve because it was from un the unconscious and it was perhaps even manifesting unconscious content, um, which gave rise to all other kinds of interpretive mechanisms around abstraction in these years. Um, but the last thing that I'll say um, in relation to, and maybe this is a good way to come back to beauty, is to think about the gendering of this. Um, I talked about the fact that more women were kind of being brought into the workforce, as it were, through the WPA. But the gendering of um, the, the um, ideas of process um, were really entrenched quite early on, and maybe that's something that we can kind of think about in relation to um, beauty. Um, Katie Siegel um, in this book actually talks about her as the midwife to color field, which I think is a very interesting idea. Um, the way it's often talked about is that she becomes um, the bridge between Jackson Pollock and what, what is possible, which was what um, Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland exclaimed upon seeing mountains and sea and feeling like here's a way that we can move forward. Pollock represented a kind of um, apogee of painting, but no one knew what to do from there, not even Pollock, um, which was, I think, part of the problem for him in the last years of his life. Um, so thinking about how this bridge or this possibility into process-based painting in these years that had so much to do with the kind of exquisite, you know, kind of um, efflorescence of color and different kinds of technical invention how and why it became gendered so quickly when in fact it was a lot of other male artists who were looking at this from the very beginning and not necessarily rendering it in those terms, but why critically um, that kind of emerged so quickly maybe is something we can think about too. Yeah, I mean I think um, it certainly had to do with people feeling threatened by all of a sudden the presence of women artists yeah. in these circles, in these spaces. Gallery representation was very hard to come by and you know somebody in in your spot is taking your spot. And so, you know, there were these 
very strict quota systems for women um, within the gallery system. Most galleries would take either zero women or maybe one or maybe two. So there were some really concrete, real factors they were dealing with. Um, um, but then the, the more sort of philosophical or theoretical underpinnings of criticism that are coming out as a different kind of bias, a different way of talking about their work versus a man who's doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe yeah. we should, um, we, were, we were talking about this and getting upset anew, um, thinking back <laughs> to some of this criticism. I mean, it's really, in some ways I was going to say it's unthinkable now, but in fact, I mean, to, to your point, you know, um, the Guerrilla Girls who are a kind of activist group who um, are all members of the contemporary art world, but who don guerrilla masks and protest and to preserve anonymity. But a lot of the statistics that they still cite are not much better, in fact, not than yeah. what you're describing. But the criticism, at least, is maybe better, at least the discursively, at moments, it's a little bit better. Um, but we'll read you. Um, maybe as I'm looking I can just say, you know, like what is really shocking if you go back and read some of the criticism from this work from the 50s, it's not subtle. So Jackson Pollock gets talked about as Jack the Dripper, and so it's seen as like a kind of slasher thing in the wake of James Dean, he becomes kind of romanticized as the James Dean of the art world. Um, but it's also deeply sexual. It's, you know, they talk about, and forgive me, but as ejaculatory painting, this is an idea that is kind of spun through a lot of this press. Um, and that her work gets seen as being gendered in a different way, which is to say the soaking and the staining gets talked about as menstruation. Um, and so it's a very, very crude analogy that gets drawn. Um, and so even Isi Goosen, who would actually go on to curate her show in 1969, and who was a fierce advocate for her work. This is something that he writes in 1961. Um, Frankenthaler's painting is manifestly that of a woman. Without Pollock's her painting, hers is unthinkable. What she took from him was masculine, the almost hard-edged linear dashes of duco enamel. What she made with it was distinctly feminine, the broad bleeding edge stain on raw linen. With this translation, she added a new candidate for the Dictionary of Plastic Forms, the stain. Um, and that's the most kind of anodyne of all of these. Um, but I mean, they're really quite crude. And so, you know, just as you're sitting here and kind of looking just to think about, like, what does it mean for this to be? Sure, it's the work of an artist who happened to be a woman. But how do we gender this as feminine? Or what does that mean? And what does that mean that it got um, kind of, in, in some ways, really deeply caricatured. Um, and there's through... so many layers that that kind of rhetoric took hold of, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it gets attached to color and yeah. the fact that she's using um, more saturated and, and uh, you know, less neutral colors, more t um, tertiary. I mean, the, the men who are using color tend to be using spectral color, like Ellsworth Kelly. Yeah. And the, or they're using very neutral colors or black and whites, and she's she's going into kind of the full range of tertiary colors mm -hmm. and blending and mixing, um, and producing these really vividly colored paintings, and that gets cast into gendered terms. Um, and actually, may I say too? Well, one thing that strikes me, I mean, these are peachier, but I mean, it, it hit me actually looking around. There's a lot of de Kooning pink actually. Yes in this show too, and like he, he attached it, there's a very famous painting of de Kooning called Pink Angels from the 40s, um, but that, you know, he attached to the idea of the war plane. So it was either for him when he used pink, 
it was somehow um, always within the kind of framework of it being actually attached to subject matter that would render it still, I guess, deeply masculine. Yeah. Um, or it would be to paint a woman's body. And of course, the famous de Kooning quote was that oil paint, um, flesh is the reason that oil paint was invented. And so often these kind of fleshy, pinky, uh, peachy hues were actually, you know, to make a figure, um, and usually a female figure after his very, very early work. Right. Um, but the other thing with the gendering that we were kind of talking about before is that, you know, in the 17th century, there was a big debate between the Rubenis and the Pusinis. And it was this idea of whether it would be color or line that would be more important. And these were kind of within the French Academy. And um, I mean, it sounds very arcane, but this had a very long kind of um, tale through the teaching of art, through the evaluation of various styles for centuries to come. But the idea was, um, you know, would the line be predominant, which was the kind of Poussinis position, that it would have a kind of integrity, that it was architectural, that there was structure, structure that was giving composition a kind of order that was intellectual um, and idealistic in some ways, or about a form of idealism, maybe is a better way to say it, versus color, which was seen as something literally superficial that was kind of put on at the last minute, that was to kind of bring out details that were there within the structure but couldn't of themselves make a painting. And so this gets decided in the favor of color, in fact, in the Rococo. And then, of course, the pendulum swings kind of back and forth ever after. And she addresses that very dialectic quite directly and talks about trying to find a way to use line by eliminating line and drawing with color instead. Yeah. And, and, and through juxtaposition and gaps and the, the kind of um, contrast yeah. that she's able to build that kind of structure without a yeah. specific and which is actually a very Matissean position too, mm -hmm. where kind of color and line become one through kind of broad application of mm -hmm. color, but within much more regulated kind of overall, they don't mm -hmm. bleed in the same way, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, landscape, we also yeah. wanted to talk about the gendering of landscape yes. and how um, that really comes through. That's uh, the second generation of the, you know, the, the people who get lumped under that label, if we're going to stick with the labels for convenience sake for the moment, um, of which she is one, and Joan Mitchell is one. Um, their, their painting, they were much more open to and much more attached to ideas of landscape uh, than the, the sort of Pollock declined cleaning um, generation. They were, they were more willing to acknowledge landscape as an influence and as a source of um, ideas and uh, imagery and inspiration, um, and that also quickly becomes a, a code word, a gendered code word, and also um, uh, a way of denigrating the second generation. Yeah. It's just, it's too referential. Yeah, and maybe this is a nice moment too to think about kind of other stories to come out of it. Mm. Um, let me read a quote that Frankenthaler said. Um, she later described her paintings as being, quote, full of climates, abstract climates, and not nature per se but a feeling, and the feeling of an order that is associated with nature. Nature in seasons, maybe, but nature in well, an order. I think art is, itself is order out of chaos, and nature is always fighting the same battle. Which is a quote that I really love. Um, and it's interesting to, to connect that too to her process and the concepts of order and chaos in her process. One, another criticism that was leveled at her work quite a bit was that it was too open to chance, that, she, that the painting was sort of doing the action, that she wasn't really in control of it, and so 
you know, you couldn't credit her as much as you might with somebody who's really carefully constructing the whole image because she's pouring the painting and she's counting on the reactions um, to be interesting. You know, what's, what happens when this more fluid hits the, the less fluid um, pour of paint next to it or, you know, dry, an area that's dry, what happens when you pour wet on top of that? But if you think about, you know, she, if she's doing this every day, this is her practice in the studio, she's pouring the paint, she's mixing the paint, she's thinking about the consistency and how much liquid to add, how much to dilute it. She knows what's gonna happen when she pours that paint on the canvas. So yes, there are some elements of it that are, are chance occurrences, but she's so in control of that medium. And she, there's a great quote, and I'm not gonna get it word for word, but she basically says, you have to have enough control to be able to, relieve, to <coughs> let go of control. And so she, she's developed that knowledge of paint and how paint moves and how her tools work. She sponges and squeegees and, you know, to sweep brooms and things to sweep the paint across the surface. And she knew how that paint was gonna move. It wasn't chaos. Yeah. And I think you know, these are some of the aspects that artists now see and value in a very different way. And so, I mean, the idea of landscape as being, you know, for her, representational also, um, and that it's about feeling and emotion, I think these are things that are, again, thought in quite a different, quite a different regard. Um, and then the idea of kind of being in the painting and the painting as a landscape and kind of what it means to, um, to then have to decide on it as a painting after, mm -hmm. which is I think also something that gets lost in a lot of this writing that's kind of like, yes, it's all, you know, she doesn't know what she's doing or the paint's doing everything. And even if everything you just said didn't exist, she still had to decide which ones to save and what orientation they would take and to decide and to put the them on the, be, where the edges Which is something we haven't talked about. Absolutely. Then, they would be loose canvases on the floor and then once you put it on the wall, you have to decide how big is the stretcher bar and where are you going to tuck it back? You know, what is the actual <coughs> frame that you're gonna frame on the stretcher? Some of them got quite a bit of, of painted canvas cut off and tossed mm -hmm. because she liked this section in the middle. It's and like cropping a photograph yes, or something. Yeah. And that time frame, the working, you know, all these abstract painters, one of the key questions for a lot of them was what to do with the corners and the edges. And it was a real problem because, you know, do, there's one implication if you let the paint go off the edge, there's another implication if you're kind of squeezing it all and keeping the energy towards the middle. And corners were a real problem for a lot of people. And so to solve it by deciding after you're done is a really interesting yeah. solution to that. And it's also really anti-cubist. Because so much cubism, if you think about it, there's like a density towards the center, and so it's a portrait or it's a still life, and then it kind of, you know, fans out to the edges into more monochromatic planes. And so I think that's also a way to kind of show a distance from that precedent. But I think there are so many decisions that she made. Um, and that's, again, this kind of like, that it's somehow feminine intuition and that that gets kind of, but do you know what I mean? Like that gets overemphasized in this way that takes the decision making out of it, or at least really um, downplays mm -hmm. those aspects, because um, the process, I guess, I would think, kind of continues not only through the paint being manipulated on the surface, but all of these other decisions between that horizontality and this verticality. That's all part of the process of deciding that this 
is a painting and a good one and a done one and one that she would let out of the studio and all of those things I think were really elided in so much early writing about mm -hmm. the second generation but her specifically I yeah. think. Yeah. Should we talk about beauty? Yeah, I was gonna, I, <laughs> yes, perfect. Um, so this was something that came up early in our conversations and it was because I, um, in my commute back and forth, was listening to Frankenthaler interviews um, as a way to kind of get my, my, wrap my head around who she was and how she talked about her work. And I um, was really struck by this quote. She, in 1993, so this is not the 50s or the 60s when some of these terms are, are you know, we, we think of them as being more contested. In 1993, she said, beautiful has always been a tricky word, but now it has become an incendiary word. And that struck me, incendiary. Um, because in many ways today, beauty is obsolete and not the main concern of art. You cannot prove beauty is there as a fact, and you know it, you feel it, it's real, but you can't say to somebody, this has it. I might be able to say it, others might be able to recognize it, but it gives no specific message other than itself. Which, and I thought that was such a fascinating thing that in 1993 she's calling out to Charlie Rose, of all people, that beauty is an incendiary, yes, exactly. Um, that it's an incendiary word. Um, and, and I told Suzanne you know, that that really struck me because in our conversations about the Joan Mitchell exhibition, when trying to come up with a title for an exhibition, which is the hardest job in the entire exhibition process, we, um, the, the first title, which we quite loved, which got nixed, was Beautiful Weed. Um, and because she thought of herself as a weed and she really liked weeds as kind of the persistent thing that grows in the garden and some people have decided it's not beautiful but it actually was to her. That got nixed for obvious marijuana reasons. Um, but we landed on Fierce Beauty and so the exhibition is Joan Mitchell, Fierce Beauty. And we knew when we were having the conversation about the title that we were going to get some pushback about even having that word beauty in the title and in fact we have. Um, and, but we, we kind of chose it deliberately for that. Beauty was important to Joan Mitchell. It was important to Helen Frankenthaler. It was a word that meant something to them and that they, that, you know, they kind of carried with them through their lives and their approach to making painting. And it became a contested term. But we can't let go of it. We can't sort of just shove it aside. Um, and so why is it that beauty is such a contested concept and even today people are saying no you shouldn't have titled your exhibition that because it 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 sort of lowers Joan Mitchell in the in the sort of esteem I don't know what the I don't even know how to say it. but you know that it that it that it lowers her reputation in some way and it makes her marked as a woman and we felt like at this moment it's so important to grab a hold of that word and to say it's a that's who she was, and it's there for a reason, and let's talk about why it's contested. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a couple thoughts. So, I mean, one, the amazing Chardin painting upstairs, yes. which I was thinking as you were talking, I mean, his work is so much about these moments of transience, or the soap bubbles, or these things that are so ephemeral and poignant, and art's function for so many centuries, at least in the West, was this idea of a preservation of something 
that would not be immortalized otherwise. So whether it's a still life with you know ripe fruit that mm. would have decayed within a couple of days in the heat, but in a painting exists for centuries, or the likeness of an individual, but just these like seasons or like things that are constantly in flux, that it gives them some kind of place to live, kind of in perpetuity. Mm. And I think there's a kind of deep beauty to that, actually, and the beauty was what compels a lot of that, or that feeling that's very ineffable, like how she's describing the landscape or the quote that you read. I think these are, are kind of emotions that are passing, and how do you give them form? And so it's as much about the feeling that they elicit, maybe, as what they look like, although they are quite beautiful objects, too. Mm -hmm. But what would it mean to elicit a feeling of beauty? Um, so that was one thing, and then the other thing that actually didn't strike me when we were talking before, but when you said 93, I was like, wait. Um, I mean, I wonder actually with that particular quote, whether it was in the context of Maplethorpe and actually the kind of nascent culture wars, which would have been, you know, so there was a Robert Maplethorpe exhibition called The Perfect Moment, which was traveling around the United States in 1989 and 1990, which as it happened, coincided with his passing of AIDS-related complications. Um, but one of the arguments that was really circulating around his work um, that became a real kind of point of contestation on both sides, but that the work was itself fiercely beautiful. And so in kind of opposition to charges that it was pornographic and should be censored because some of the photographs that he was exhibiting in this exhibition um, were photographs of sex acts between two men. Um, they were, you know, these exquisite silver gelatin prints that were perfectly composed, perfectly printed. So the idea that beauty could actually be wielded to that purpose became kind of a point of contestation on the left and the right around around his work and I think in the context of AIDS and the kind of, you know, what it meant to kind of keep hold of beauty in the face of abjection and should work be more directly activist or political mm -hmm. or did beauty have a place in it and I would say maybe someone like Felix Gonzalez Torres would kind of advocate really profoundly for the place of beauty even in the context of that but I mean I wonder because she was involved in the NEA yes. in those years so I wonder yeah. if that actually came out of I don't know. I hadn't had that thought sense, until yeah. now, so I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know either, but it's a good one. <laughs> but as to why why people are so upset about it now, yeah, I think it's so. I interesting. think because it's still such a gendered word, and yeah. and you know, and and maybe that's a good. This is a good time to talk a little bit about all yeah. of these exhibitions that yeah. are. Are, t are bringing out new ways of framing the work of some of these women painters in particular, yeah. but also abstract expressionism more generally. Yeah. Um, and I think you can tell by the fact that we brought, both brought the same books. We're big fans of this, um, which came out uh, just a few years ago, 2015. It's called The Heroine Paint After Frankenthaler. And it really um, took her and to some extent her the social circle around Tibor Dinaj as a jumping off point to kind of reimagine what would art history since Helen Frankenthaler look like if we take her and Mountains and Sea as kind of the generative moment. And so going and looking for artists who have talked about Frankenthaler or worked in, along lines that are very similar to hers, <coughs> could be connected back to hers and building a, a history um, told that way rather mm -hmm. than um, through some of the previous mm -hmm. lenses. Which then again, you know, very much indulges in accident 
And again, accident within boundaries of kind of um, willful accident. Yeah. Um, accident framed as part of the process that is managed and controlled and all the things that we were talking about. Um, and um, color as being something not to be feared in this land of primaries and monochromy and mm -hmm. all the things you were mentioning also. Um, and then the kind of taking on actually even the idea of the feminine as something that could be celebrated and that could central. actually be central to the work instead of a kind of unfortunate byproduct of kind of social conventions and certain forms of misogynist criticism to actually take that on as a kind of positive. Um, and I think this is part of a larger, um, I think this is a moment where a lot of that work is kind of being reappraised right now in Los Angeles at MOCA. Anna Katz just opened a really terrific show that I would recommend on pattern and decoration, which is work that was made in the 1970s and 1980s on both coasts, um, but has a really strong kind of California story to it um, through Woman House and other, other things. Um, but it's all about the celebration of the decorative and the colorful and the feminine. So these things that are not something to kind of shun and that are no longer seen as being somehow antithetical to kind of big serious painting and kind of avant-gardism. Um, and yes, like all these, it's so interesting. I mean, it's the Mitchell show and the Lee Krasner show that Eleanor Nairn curated that unfortunately is not coming to the US but that started at the Barbican in London and is traveling to many venues um, in Europe. But she's really, I think, thought very differently and importantly about Krasner, not only as an artist, although absolutely like the show is, I saw it in London, it's ravishing like from top to bottom, it's like perfect. Um, and so it makes a very strong case for beauty, um, for Krasner as an incredibly important artist, irrespective of who she happened to be married to for some few years of her life. Um, but also, um, Eleanor's really importantly repositioning her as the reason we have a market for abstract expressionism. And so she's thought a lot about what it meant for Krasner to be really like taking on Pollock's estate and manipulating it, frankly, in ways that were deeply shrewd, like thinking about which paintings to release, which paintings to sell to whom, how to create a market for abstract expressionism um, in the wake of her partner's death. So thinking not only about the kind of role of these artists and their work, but also thinking about them within the kind of um, retrospection of this period as such and how important they actually were. And so they've kind of gotten credit for neither thing right. appropriately until more recently. Um, but one other, I mean, very, um, something that I really don't like um, that I feel like is happening now that I was thinking about this in the context of is there's been so much work from artists of this generation or slightly after who are only kind of coming to light now, you know, as they're in their 80s or 90s yeah. and kind of what the implications of that are. But the more positive way to think about it is if we can retell stories like this and say, in fact, the women were central the whole way along, who else will kind of get carried along yeah. with these narratives? and? how many people and practices have been occluded who were there the whole time, making really important work um, that deserves to be seen now mm -hmm. and after. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.